Please take your copy of God's Word at this time for the preaching of the Word and turn with me to Psalm 64. Psalm 64. Hear the Word of the Lord. Psalm 64 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked and from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. We live in a day and an age when conspiracy theories abound. The very enamoration with conspiracies, theories, uh, questions about happenings in the world is almost a daily occurrence. Almost every day there's a new conspiracy that arises. Some question or quibble about uh, things of times past, whether it's the assassination of a president, whether it's a duly elected president. These things are on the lips of many in our nation. And it is easy for the Christian to get lost in all of these temporal conspiracies that are just things to distract us from the true conspiracy. You may hear people talk of conspiracies, and after they're done talking, you look at them and you say, you are crazy. To believe what you are believing, the extent at which the lies and the deceit must go, you are simply out of your mind to believe such things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I am here to tell you this morning that you are not crazy. There is a conspiracy against Christ and His people. There is a conspiracy against Christ and His people. There is a rejection of Him and His reign over all things. You children, you might hear the word conspiracy and not know what it means. Well, conspiracy is simply an agreement between two or more persons or parties to engage jointly to commit an illegal act along with the intent to achieve that agreement and its goal. You may ask yourself, what then is the conspiracy? What is the joint agreement by people against the Lord and His anointed. We see clearly in Psalm 2 this very thing. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We come to Psalm 64. David writes this psalm. He delivers it to the chief musician, whoever it was at the time, likely Asaph. And Asaph takes it and it is sung in the church. It is a psalm or mismore of David. A third of the Psalms bear that title of a psalm. And here David would show us the true conspiracy. As we noted already, there is a lust and a uh, deception to follow after earthly conspiracies to the herd of the church. And one of the reasons why you can see that these are uh, things that the Christian really does not need to spend and waste all of their time on, not to say that they're not important, but as distractions, it should not be your primary focus. Is oftentimes, even Christians that will speak of these temporal conspiracies will reject the true identity of Antichrist. It's no longer the Pope, it's now the President. They will downplay Rome and her many heresies and schisms, not the least of which is her view of justification. And they will misplace the Jews. Oftentimes you'll see the book of Revelation 
as being written as if that was referring to the fall of Jerusalem and not to things that are done even now and to the coming of Christ. But we have before us this psalm, a psalm which speaks of covenant conspiracy. Covenant conspiracies. It is the machinations of the malefactors against the Messiah and his members. The psalmist writes for us this psalm and breaks it up into three sections. We'll look and consider this morning three points from Psalm 64. First, the cry of the covenant keeper in the first two verses. The cry of the covenant keeper. Second, the curse of the covenant breaker. We find that section from verse 3 down to verse 6. And then we have the counter of the covenant king. The counter of the covenant king. And we'll see that from 7 to the end, which is verse 10. This psalm, beloved, bears a striking resemblance to Psalm 2. This is why I prayed a portion of it in our morning prayer. This is why I quoted it in the introduction. And I draw your attention to it again. See how Psalm 2 is laid out. You have this rabble against the king. You have this issue. And then from that, you see the ways in which they try to overthrow the king. And then from then on, we have the largest section which deals with the king and these conspirators. Look at Psalm 64. The first two verses deals with that rabble coming against one of the people of God conspiring against him. They are joined together. They imagine a vain thing. And then verses 3 to 6 is the enumeration of how they conspire against the Lord and his anointed. And then from verse 7 to 10, you see the response of that king to the conspiracy. This psalm, Psalm 64, is the Christian's psalm too. So what Psalm 2 is to our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, speaking explicitly of Him, Psalm 64 is to us, that Psalm 2. You notice that the strength of the psalmist doesn't come from himself. The strength of Christ comes from Himself, being a member of the Godhead. But the strength of the psalmist comes from Christ. So first, the cry of the covenant keeper. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. The Apostle Paul, after being beaten, left for dead, stoned, comes to the churches and gives to them this revelation. It is with much trial and temptation and persecution that we enter into the kingdom of God. And here, David is saying the same thing. You see, spiritual warfare, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, was not different in the Old Testament. It was very much the same. You see the life of David, how he is at warfare with those that conspire against Christ. Saul is first made king. And Saul rejects to follow the word of the Lord. Saul is a covenant child. Saul's been circumcised the eighth day as David was. And yet, though he's a member of the visible church, he is not a member of the invisible church. He has no saving reality to speak of concerning the approving of his circumcision to his salvation. Instead, it stands as a witness against him for damnation on the last day. And Saul sins against God in two ways. He spares Agag's life and the sheep and the animals. And then he goes further beyond that and sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. And it's these two things that finally rip the kingdom from Saul. And Samuel delivers that tragic prophecy to him 
that is going to be taken from him and given to one of his neighbors who has a heart that seeks after God. In the midst of this, the Philistines rise up and go against Saul. And Saul's fearful. He's the man that stands head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. And Goliath of Gath, this giant, comes out, curses the thrice holy God and the people of God, and makes a proclamation, a contest, him versus one man on the side of Israel. And if he's beaten, then the Philistines will serve Israel the rest of their days. But if Israel is beaten, they will serve the Philistines. And no one rises to the challenge. And yet, in the Lord's providence, David is not old enough to go to battle. He's watching his father's sheep. And he is taken from the sheepfold by his father Jesse and told, Take these cheeses and some bread. Go to your brothers. See how the battle's going and encourage them. And he does just that. And David hears the words of Goliath of Gath. And he's not having any of it. And he tries to embolden the men who are called to duty. The ones that are dressed for battle. The ones that are old enough and commissioned by God to go to the battlefield. And he says to them, is there not a cause that this uncircumcised Philistine blasphemes the living God? Is there not a cause? And then he further encourages these men by saying, what did the king say will happen to the one that defeats this uncircumcised Philistine? And they're able to rattle off the answer. The same way the Pharisees are able to rattle off the answer to Herod. What's the events of the Messiah? Where is he going to be born? In what circumstance? And they rattle off the answer. And these men before David rattle off the answer. He's going to be made second in command. He's going to be given one of the daughters to wife. He's going to be given great riches. And his family will be free of taxation. That's not enough of an incentive. The temporal things was not enough of an incentive because they had no spiritual reality of the covenant of Christ. But David, the covenant keeper, speaks these things uh, despite the rebuffing of his brothers against him, misaligning him as coming merely to be naughty and to look at the battle because he was some sort of warmonger. <clears throat> he stands before Saul. He tells Saul that what's going to happen to Goliath of Gath will be the same way that the Lord preserved him from the bear and the lion. And you know the rest of the story. David takes the head of Goliath with his own sword after slinging a stone into his forehead. He doesn't wear Saul's armor. He goes in the strength of the Lord. And the Lord delivers Goliath into his hand. And it's then that Saul is met with the Lord's new anointed. At the end of that chapter, it's some very damning words come from the mouth of Saul. Before he sends him out to battle, he says, The Lord be with thee. The strength of the Lord that should have been on Saul to go and fight Goliath himself was then placed on David. Saul's a crafty man. He gathers David to himself because he sees him. He sees his ability and his strength. Whether he's a savant or not, he doesn't care. He sees his ability and he says, I'm going to gather him to me. But when he sees the Lord raising up David, his pride can't stand it. And he conspires to slay David. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, comes numerous times to Saul, reminds him of the goodness that David had done, how there's nothing forward in him to make him worthy of death. And from time to time, Saul relents. But at the end of the day, Saul is bloodthirsty against David because David is a type of Christ. If he can't have the kingdom, Christ can't have the kingdom. And this is the thought of Saul. And every person that rises up against David has the same thought. We might not be able to touch God, but we can touch his, his friend. We can touch the one that he has in his stead. And this is where we see the cry of the covenanter. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve me from the life of from the fear of the enemy. 
Now you might ask yourself, where is this fear coming from? What does David mean by the fear of the enemy? That he would ask the Lord to preserve him from it, to keep him, to have him shielded in this shelter from the fear of the enemy. What is the fear of the enemy? Is David afraid of the enemy? He'd have good reason to be. But I think, though David may be afraid of the enemy, we see that his fear of God is greater because he turns his thoughts and his prayers to God. You see, Christian, this is what must happen in your life as well. Whenever fear enters into your heart concerning some wicked one, concerning some happenstance in life, if your faith and trust is not in the Lord, you're going to find yourself bunkering down and further and further and further into depths of depression because you're not focusing on Christ. You're focusing on how can I get out of this difficulty? How can I fix this? There's nothing wrong with using lawful means. But there's something very wrong in using those lawful means divorced from the power of God. David has used lawful means. And whatever fear he has about these men trying to take his life, it redirects him to Christ, who he fears greater. To the living God, who is able with a finger to flick these people away. We'll see that at the very end. But see the fear that he has. But I think especially the fear of the enemy that he's referring to is the fear that the enemy has for God. Have you ever been um, awakened at night? You hear this kind of jittering happening to one of your uh, trash cans outside. You go to check on it and it's a a wild animal. It may be a possum or a raccoon or maybe a dog got into it. How do animals react when they're afraid? Do they just come up to you and purr and rub their against your leg? No. They're some of the most unreasonable creatures. A fearful animal acts in unconventional ways. Acts in ways that are against nature, against reason. It's almost this suicidal type of tendency. It's taking down whatever's in front of them to try and escape. You see this in the wicked. You see this in the wicked, do you not, beloved? The lengths at which they will go because they fear God. And it's insane. It's insane. Look at David and his life with Saul. He has two instances that he could have taken Saul's life. God delivers him twice into his hand. He cuts the skirt the first time, and he takes the spear and the jar from him the second time. Saul, with all of his wit and wisdom, seeks out David all over the place, and he can't find him. Sends out men to and fro throughout Judah, can't find him. He has the Ziphites telling him, is not David among us? He sends his men to the Ziph. He's gone. And Saul is beyond himself because he can't find David. Meanwhile, Jonathan, his son, goes into the wood and instantly finds David, being led of the Spirit. It's maddening. It's maddening. And it's this madness of the enemy that David is praying for deliverance from. We are not told when especially David is writing the psalm. It could be during the time of Saul. It could be after that when Abner has taken the other son of Saul and made him king of Ziklag. It could be the time of Absalom and his rebellion. We're not told. Truly it doesn't matter because this fits well with any of those times. And believer, it will fit well in any of the times in your spiritual life. That at any time that you are in danger and you see the fear of the enemy rising up, you can cry out to the Lord. You can cry out to Christ for aid and he will answer you from heaven. We see this in the cry of the covenanter. But see what David says, Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. This is conspiracy. 
This is conspiracy pure and simple. They've gathered together and they have a secret counsel against David. As you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's interesting to see the Holy Spirit noting that there were men of Belial that joined themselves to David. Why would the Spirit do that? Even with David's band, there were still those that were Judas's. Even as Jesus had the twelve disciples, there was one Judas among them. There was one that would conspire against the Lord and his anointed in secret, wicked counsel. And David knows this. He's not there for the secret, wicked counsel, but he knows. And you know this too, brothers, do you not? Where you might be at work, and there might be someone that's not liked very well, and there's a couple of people that get together, and they decide something, and then pretty soon... Someone's in the office talking to HR. Secret councils. What is it today that we have in our generation? Is it not the fact of some shameful thing actually being committed that is now removing people? But the very accusation removes them. And so you see the conspiracy of the wicked. Truth doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter at all. If we can accuse this person of doing these things, we'll act as if the accusation itself is evidence and proof that they're doing these things. And we'll get the mob together, and they will all agree. We'll see godly ministers. This is what we have to face. You should be praying for your minister daily concerning the attacks of the wicked one. Because you would not like to see such false accusations. And think about it. What would you do If some wicked women got together, didn't care for your minister's preaching the gospel, didn't care for his open-air preaching at the abortion mill, got together and conspired together saying that he had molested someone. And there it is in the morning news. This sort of accusation is not beyond the pale, beloved. It's happened to godly ministers. The secret counsel and conspiracy of the wicked against the righteous. And you need to pray. You need to be in fervent prayer that the Lord preserves your minister and you from these kind of accusations. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked. They might conspire together. They might plot together. But David is asking to be hidden from them so that whatever Councils and whatever things they plan together never come to fruition. Somebody bugs out. Somebody gets uh, creeped out about something that might be happening and they decide not to go out with a plan. This is what the Lord David is praying for. This is his cry to the Lord to upset the plans of the wicked. Is that your prayer, beloved? When you see a brother or sister in Christ in danger, being torn apart. You pray that the Lord preserve them and keep them. If you have abiding bitternesses in your heart and your thought is, well, they're getting what's come to them, you need to repent of that. That should not be on the lips of the believer. Instead, you need to cry out to the Lord for the fear of the enemy who's seeking to devour them. But that devouring does not come without a price. There is a curse of the covenant breaker. See how the covenant breaker curses the Lord and his anointing. Beloved, this is a covenant made with death. This is not the covenant of life that Moses set before Israel. Remember, on the two mounts, he commands them when they enter into the promised land. On this mountain, you're supposed to do all the blessings. On this mountain, you have to do all the curses. And Moses says to them, well, see to it, I have set before you this day blessing and cursing, life and death. Therefore, choose life. These ones have chosen death. They've chosen the curse. These are the ones that we read about in Proverbs 1. You have Solomon coming to Rehoboam and warning him about wicked counselors. My son of sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Here is the enticements of them. 
How are they together in this conspiracy? How are they deciding we are going to do this unlawful act to reach the end that the Lord's anointed might be defeated and we are established in his place? What is their curse? See what David says, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words, that they may shoot in secret as a perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. The very beginning that David notes is not physical attacks. It's verbal attacks. You children might have heard the rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, that's not true. Sometimes verbal assaults are more painful, more long-lasting than physical assaults. And we see that here, do we not? That the very first thing that David brings out is the words of these individuals. And see how they use it like a sword. They use it like a bow and an arrow. David shoots his prayers up to the Lord like an arrow. Why? Because the wicked are shooting verbal arrows at him. You see this many times. The curse of the covenant breaker. They do not speak well except to gain the advantage. They curse instead at those that they're against. And they're cursing as such that they're able to deceive and convince everyone else that you're the one that's insane. You're the one that's crazy. Do we not see that in our day and age today? We see the wicked uh, trans types reading to our children in a library. And we're called insane for calling them groomers and calling them out for what they are. You remember back to the 1980s and the 1990s. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you are too young. I've gotten to the point now where I'm old enough to remember that. But the cry of the LGBTQ community back then was, we're not coming for your children. We just want to be. Look at 20 years later, beloved. Look at 40 years later. What do you see? They're coming for your children. But they lied to you then. They're lying to you now. And so it is. These workers of iniquity, they shoot these arrows. And so they have corralled the entire people who say, these are the wicked ones. These are the ones with the problem. These are the ones that need to be destroyed. And so they shoot out their arrows against the truth, seeking to slay it. They wet their tongue like a sword. That's they sharpen it against a whetstone. Sometimes the things that are said are just ridiculous. It's just shot out in a flurry. Sometimes it's well-crafted. And it's often the well-crafted things that's very difficult to cut through, is it not? It's very difficult to parry against. What is it that the kingdom of Christ is founded upon? We sing about it at the end of Psalm 100. We see it throughout the Psalter. Truth and mercy. Truth and mercy. Two things that you would not expect to find together are the foundation for Christ's kingdom. And it is this, that when we go out and battle against these wicked ones, that we bear on either sleeve of our arm. One can't go without the other. And so when the wicked are hurling out untruths, you bring forth the truth. When they're hurling out unmerciful things, you bring forth mercy. And the Lord uses this to his honor and glory. Their purpose, they shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. Saul again. How many times does David have to duck and cover for javelins being thrown at him? Shooting at secret. And yet, isn't it interesting how the Lord often will overturn the counsel of the wicked and bring it upon themselves? Ahab goes into battle dressed as another man. There's someone on the other side that just by chance shoots an arrow, kills Ahab. Strikes him with a fatal blow. And yet we see that in the Lord here. We see how the wicked seek to destroy. They plot out 
they have their snipers set up to take out those that are the Lord's. You think of the life and ministry of Christ. We see in the Gospels that there are a number of times when Jesus leaves through the crowd. He departs. He knows it's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. Even at the end, where you have the Last Supper, he gives to Judas the bread and says, What thou doest, do quickly. Judas knew that Jesus' custom was to go to Gethsemane. And Jesus could have foiled his plans by going somewhere else that day. But so that the Father's will and decree would be fulfilled, Jesus submits to it, and he's in Gethsemane. And when Judas comes up and kisses him out of slight, out of secret, to peg the perfect one, how does Jesus respond to him? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When the wicked come to grab Christ and to take hold of him and arrest him, and they ask him, Are you Jesus? What does he say? I am. And they fall back as dead men. Twice. Twice. They seek to slay the perfect. This is the grand conspiracy. To go against those that are the Lord's. And so, beloved, if they're seeking to go after the perfect... You must, with all sincerity of the Spirit, in your sanctification, keep yourself unspotted. You understand? Keep yourself unspotted from sins that will make easy attacks. That will make it easy for them to say, here is one that claims to be Christ, and by his actions, by his life, he is not demonstrating that. And you need to do some introspection and look in your heart and say, am I engaging in activities that if they were publicly known would bring shame upon me and shame upon the name of Christ? And if the answer is yes, repent of those sins. Repent of those particular sins particularly. And Christ will receive you. There's some young men that ask me from time to time about political office, they, they have an eye for maybe doing something in the mayor or uh, representative or the like. And one of the things that I remind them of is this. You need to watch your step. Every single step that you take is being monitored and watched. Everywhere you go online is being cataloged. Do not go out of step once. One step for the righteous is enough for the wicked to come in and flick them off. The wicked, it's their bread and butter. It doesn't matter how wicked the wicked person is. They're still going to get in power. That's their guy. But the wicked know that the righteous are righteous because they play by a different rule book. The righteous have integrity. The righteous, when confronted with unconfessed sin, will bow out. The wicked don't care. So again, beloved, you see what it says here concerning the curse of the covenant breaker, how the covenant breaker curses the righteous. Keep yourself unspotted in this untoward generation. Consider Galatians, the works of the flesh, in contrast with the works, the fruit of the Spirit. Which do you see in your life? Is it the works of the flesh or is it the fruit of the Spirit? It ought to be the fruit of the Spirit. And when you see the works of the flesh, you need to repent of it. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death. And ask the Spirit for vivification. Making alive the things that are left dead. Those remaining sins in our heart. The remaining corruptions. As I noted... They make it their bread and butter to look out for any error that you might have. Verse 6. They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search, both the inward thought of every man, one of them, and their heart is deep. This is why you have to be very careful about who you keep as friends. Bad company corrupts good morals. And bad company will be on the lookout for ways to take you out. Right? This is what David is noting. 
and it would be good if Christians were more wise to this. If Christians understood this fact. One of the deceitful things of Satan is his kingdom is on the downside. His kingdom is going down. His head is crushed. Christ has dealt the fatal blow. And he will use any tactic and any way to corral people together to in, in order to take out those that are against him. One of the ways that he does this is to have us believe that those that are in the kingdom of darkness aren't that bad. In fact, they're on your side. And so what do you see today, beloved? When we go out and we preach and protest and adjure the women going into the abortion mill, do you align yourself with the papists that are there? Or do you make sure that there is a contradistinction between you two? There needs to be a contradistinction. Just because these ones who are emissaries of Satan and the man of sin are there, and just because they're saying, choose life, choose life, choose life, doesn't mean they're on the same side as us. They may be co-belligerents, but they're not friends. We need to be very careful that we distinguish the two things. People of the world can say similar things to Scripture. The light of nature is very clear. It's very hard to get away from the fact that you only have two sexes that are born ever, male and female. Yet the world will say, no, 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 there's all these other sexes, there's all these other things, there's even non-binary, there's etc., etc. And you will have pagan unbelievers saying, that's crazy, there's only male and female. And the temptation of Christians is to go with them to garner support for this light of nature truth. But what do you see, beloved? You can say, yes, they're saying the same thing because that's what nature says. But do we align ourselves and make friendship with the world so that good may come? The answer is no. Why? Because without regeneration, without the gospel coming in, the spirit effectually calling them, they are not on the side of Christ at the end of the day. And they will seek to have the prominence and take out the godly. It happens time and time again. All you have to do is study history and providence to see how that happens. I don't have to riddle you with example after example to put you to sleep. This has been shown to be the case. We need to be very careful about the friends that we keep. Your brothers and sisters in Christ should be your closest friends. Closer than your family. And we pray that as the Lord is merciful, he brings in whole households, right? You bring in your children and they're baptized. And we, we languish over the day when covenant children depart and go after the way of the world, when they apostatize. But how wonderful it is to have a church where it can be truly said several generations of believing covenant members are found. That's a great blessing. But beloved, your, your closest friends ought to be those that are, have a saving relationship with Christ. Members of the church that are following after his way. They seek out all these things. They seek to curse the covenant keeper. They are the cane in the field that says to Abel, I want to talk to you about something. And maybe the intention is good at first, but at the rebuke of their own sin, whether from conscience or from Abel, they pick up a stone and slay the brother. That's always the end. Look at Jacob and Esau. Esau, when Jacob returns, shows favor to him. But what of his kindred? What was the heritage that Edom gave to his children? Was it to say, Jacob is wonderful and beautiful and you should do everything in your power to help him? No, behind the scenes it was, I hate Jacob. He stole my birthright. See everything that he did. This is why in Psalm 137... We sing about Edom seeing the destruction of Judah and saying, raise, raise it to its foundation. 
Why? Because Esau repented and aligned himself with Jacob? No. It was all a facade. It was all superficial veneer. But behind the scenes, there was this mounting and building hatred. Until finally it bursts like a boil. Like a blister that can no longer hold in everything. And it spews out. But beloved, if this is where the psalm ended, we would be very discouraged. The psalm does not end here. Instead, we see the counter of the covenant king against the curse of the covenant breakers. Verse 7. God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. You see how much time David takes laying out before the Lord everything that the covenant breakers are doing, everything that the wicked does. And this should be an example for us. When we come to the Lord in prayer, and we come to him in the strength of the Spirit, that we are verbose with the issues at hand, with how we're being afflicted. You're coming into the court of heaven. You're coming into the council of the thrice holy God. And you're coming to this infinite, eternal spirit for aid. And you're going to give him a soundbite? You're going to give him a drive-by? No. Lay on your face and spend the much-needed time before his throne, at his feet. And lay the whole thing out. Be as Hezekiah was, who received the scroll from the Assyrians, and he takes it and lays it out before the Lord so that the Lord may see the entirety of it, every word, every jot, every tittle, laying it before the Lord. That's what David does. He lays it all out before the Lord, everything that they're doing. Several verses here in the Psalms taken up. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and then one verse, God flicks them away. See the power of the Almighty. This is what Balaam prophesied to Balak concerning Israel. A star will arise in Israel, and there will be a scepter. He's going to overthrow your empire. He's going to overthrow the other empires as well. This is Christ. As much as Balak tried to uh, destroy Israel, he could not. And he was destroyed by Israel instead. He was destroyed by the Lord and his anointed. The counter of the covenant king. How simple, how easy it is for the Lord to do that. And you may be of a sort that seeing this verse, you're not encouraged. Instead, you're enraged. Your raging has to do with this sinful idea of unbelief. If God was this powerful, why didn't he just do it? Why did he wait so long? Didn't he see me suffering? Didn't he see everything that I was going through? And the lie of Satan is right there, ready to take hold. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's withholding from you. Do not, do not believe the lie of the serpent. He's a murderer from the beginning. And he wants you to turn heel against Christ. Do not fall prey to that wicked mindset, beloved. Why does the Lord not immediately cast all sin into hell? Because we would be there too. He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Part of the reason why it took so much time in your estimation for the Lord to react was because he was showing long-suffering to those that were seeking to destroy you. He was also teaching you patience. Look at the life of Job. James brings this out. Consider our brother Job. 
who teaches us to have patience in affliction. Job was being tried by the Lord. He was being refined in his spiritual walk. Understand that, beloved. That so long as you're waiting for the Lord to deliver you, it is the Lord putting you in the fiery furnace of refinement so that you might come out for the better and not the worse. The removing of dross, the removing of any sin, anything that needs to be gotten rid of, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. The apostle says in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's what will keep you going. Having an eye of faith towards Christ, you can remain in the furnace for decades. The reason why Christians don't remain in the furnace for decades is because their eye of faith is not on Christ. But if you're putting your faith and trust in Christ, you can remain in the furnace. Consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They tell Nebuchadnezzar, our God can deliver us, but whether he will or not is up to him. But know of a truth, king, we will not bow down to your statue. And Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. They hit the ground. Their bands are burned up, but their clothes aren't. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and questions. Questions how many they threw in. He's told three. He says there is a fourth one there, and he's like unto the Son of God in appearance. When you are in the fiery furnace, and this isn't some biblical theology, moralistic thing. This is a truth. Christ is there with you. Christ was already there to catch them when they were coming into the furnace. And whether it was to catch them and to have his angels fetch their soul up to heaven or to preserve them through it, to walk out of it alive as a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar is his will. And it's not to be questioned. Isn't that a beautiful thought though, beloved? When we go through those trials, when we go through the fiery furnace, the Lord's good and glory is going to be proclaimed. Not, not these mockers, not the cursors. They're not going to be exalted. It's going to be the godly. This is one of the things that uh, early in the persecutions of the church baffled the Roman kings. You have Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher Caesar, and, and he was just gobsmacked at how well these Christians take persecution. They're not, they're, they're not committing anarchy. They're not overthrowing the government. Look at these guys. They, they speak well of their God and go to the lions cheerfully. Who are these people? And Marcus Aurelius, in all of his stoicism, could not muster that up if he was on the other side. But beloved, the Lord can come suddenly and will come suddenly. Think of the last day. What are we told about the last of the last days? How is the Lord Jesus Christ going to come? As a thief in the night. As a thief in the night. The people whether it's of the church or of the world, that were of a stupor, that were lazy. Think of the parable of the virgins with their lamps. Think of the man that's fast asleep in his house and the thief breaks in suddenly. The Lord's going to come back in such a way. All this buildup of Antichrist, all this buildup of the sinful nations of the world that will not have anything to do with Christ. Christ comes back in an instant, and they're all gone. And it is with this fear and trembling that the Apostle Paul notes, so we preach Christ. Knowing the terror of the Lord. Do you see this? It, it's, you've probably heard the story of the sword of Damocles, how the one man looked at the king and he's like, why are you always scared? There's no reason to be scared. 
He says, okay, you sit in my stead and you rule as king for a day. And he commissioned that there be a sword from a rope dangle from his head. And the entire time, the man is scared to say anything because he's not sure when the sword's going to fall. You understand, that's the coming of Christ for the ungodly. This is why we preach the gospel to them. Because at the fulfillment of all things that he has decreed, Christ will return, and it will be sudden. They'll be cut off guard. There'll be great fear and terror seizing them. What do we read in Revelation 6? They go into the mountains, they go into the clefts, fall on us, fall on us, for the great day of his wrath has come. In an instant, the Lord comes to deliver his people. A hundred years preaching righteousness was Noah building the ark, getting mocked at for people. Why, why an ark? Why in the middle of, why, there's no water. And it's going to rain? We haven't seen rain. What's rain? A hundred years. He's preaching the gospel to them, saying, repent, the Lord is going to destroy the entire world. Repent, the Lord's going to destroy the whole world. And suddenly, one day, it starts to rain, and no more. No more hope. This is what we preach. And Peter notes in his second epistle, the second coming will be the same way. It will be sudden with fire. Not with water, but with fire. Let's see how the Lord glorifies himself. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider his doings. When the Lord takes out the wicked, we respond to the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We don't make light of the wicked. The Lord has made very clear in his word that when we do that, when we rob glory from God to say, na 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 you got what's coming to you, that the Lord at times will relinquish his judgment and show mercy to the wicked. Instead, we see that and we give glory to God. The wicked see that and they scatter like a bunch of cockroaches when you flick on the light. This is our Lord. This is what he does. He scatters the wicked. And consider the Tower of Babel. This Nimrod makes himself the first king sets up a tower to unite all peoples. All God has to do is come down and mess up all the languages. And all the people are scattered. It's the same thing. In Pentecost, we see the opposite happen. We see God gathering all the peoples back to himself. But here's this one that uh, thought himself to be king. And God comes and with a flick of his spirit sends them into confusion. We see this quite frequently, do you not? How many court cases do we see where there's RICO charges? There's this conspiracy on a grander scale, so everybody's able to be charged with the same crime because they conspired together. And it's not very long until someone folds. And when the first person folds, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and everybody's at each other's throats. It was you! No, it was you! You did it! I wouldn't have any part of it! And this is the way of the wicked. That when things finally crumble, when they finally fall apart, they're quick to turn on one another. And this should never be the way of Christians. We should never see that in the church. This is what Christ said, and John says in his epistles, By this shall all know, men know me, and know that you are part of me, that you love one another. They turn on themselves... The covenant king counters by turning their own devices against them. They were marshaled together. They were ready to go into battle. And Christ comes with a shout, with a two-edged sword that's coming out of his own mouth. He destroys the two-edged sword that they had wet with their tongue. We saw in Revelation 6, the one sitting upon the horse, what did he have? He had a crown on his head. What did he have in his arm? He had a bow. He had a bow. 
He shoots his arrows back at these ones that are shooting against his people. We see the warfare, the spiritual warfare of the Lord of hosts, of Christ, to go forth into battle and ride in front of us to destroy that old serpent first, to take the victory. And all we are dealing with now is skirmishes. And yet we see the covenant king countering against them time and time again. Look at our response to the countering of the covenant king. Verse 10, The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glorify. Shall, shall glory. The response of us to the Lord is one of glory. And when we see the Lord at work, you've been in the fiery furnace, you've been going through that sanctifying work, now you're pulled out. And as time wanes, the thing that's metal and it's rather liquid in form and now returns back to a solid state as it cools. You see that here. David has been in the fiery furnace. You've been in the fiery furnace. You come out of it and you're malleable. You're soft. And yet in time, the trust that you have for the Lord hardens and strengthens. This is what happens when the king counters the wicked. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14 about the use of prophecy and tongues in the early church by the apostles and prophets. And how when an unbeliever came into their midst, they would hear the word of the Lord and fall on their face and glorify God, saying, God is in your midst. When God acts, that is an opportunity for the church to point the unbeliever to Christ. To point him to the one who they should put their trust in. So many of these ones that run away when the Lord acts, Saul's slain, and they pew, Benjaminites go to the four corners of the earth. Abner eventually comes to David, and he comes in good faith. It's wicked Joab that murders him. But you see this, long-suffering of the Lord, that those that were against Christ and against his kingdom, Christ pulls and makes wolves into sheep. And Saul of Tarsus is the same way. He says it himself. He went out a murdering wretch, calls himself the chief of sinners for it, and he says, yet I found mercy because I did it ignorantly. This is the unbelieving world. How many of them truly know what's going on? They don't. They don't have a heart of faith. They don't truly know. Much of what they're doing is in ignorance. So when the Lord acts, when he counters their wicked devices, their conspiracies, it's an opportunity for us to show forth the righteousness of Christ. To come alongside of them and say, Christ died for those that are his. He came into the world to save sinners. He has saved me. He can save you. Put your faith and trust in him. Beloved, you may be sitting here this morning, dear friend, and you have not put your faith and trust in Christ. You may be secretly, behind the scenes, as one of these conspires, plotting with others, seeking to overthrow godly men and women, seeking to do the church harm, I command you to repent and to turn to Christ. The gospel is laid before you, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that it is with his atoning sacrifices that those that are his receive repentance unto life. Atonement is made for sin in the blood of Christ. And you will give an account whether you receive Christ or you reject him. Just as Judas rejected him and became the son of perdition. Just as so many others have heard the gospel and said, maybe tomorrow, but today I'll conspire. Maybe tomorrow, but today I'll have my fill. 
there may not be a tomorrow for you. You do not know the sudden action of the Lord against you and your wickedness. You see, all the conspiracies of the wicked, and in verse 7, suddenly God shoots and they're done. You could go into your car after we have our meal, head down the road, and that's it. You do not know what today holds or tomorrow holds. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, close with him today. Take hold of him by faith. Put your trust in his work, his active and passive obedience. And let the slaying of his back, the stripes that he's received, be the healing of your soul. Let us look to the Lord in prayer.